Yeah, well, welcome everyone um, back to our equipping hour on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as always, we'll pray, ask God's blessing, and then get into it. And again, I just mentioned it, but there are handouts in that box by the sound booth as you come through. I think you all know that. So let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for gathering us together as the people that you've redeemed in your Son. We thank you for the immense uh, grace and truth that you have poured out in him. And we thank you for the ways that your scriptures unfold, both in, in terms of anticipation and in terms of declaring that the reality has come. The one really in, uh, the, the one who's coming is really the central um, event of all of what you've revealed and all you're doing among mankind and saving a people. And so... We are going to be looking to your word and we need your help. We pray that you give us eyes by your spirit to see Christ, to hear what he's saying with clarity and with humility. Help me to be clear as well in in speaking. Help us all to have alertness and um, please shape us. Make us more like your son. And as this sermon is developing a picture of what disciples are, we pray that we who have fled to Christ for refuge would more and more look like this and have the joy of this greater righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right. Well, I want to get the gears turning, get everyone warmed up mentally a little bit with an exercise, really just a question. And I did this last week. I'm going to do it again. If you're taking notes and you have any means of writing something down, I want you to write down an answer to this question. Should Christians obey the Old Testament law? Should Christians obey the law of Moses? Okay, so we're getting an answer. Thanks, Lamar. Let's let's uh, kind of retort, like in silence. Maybe just just think about the answer. Either write it or just think it. So, Lamar, you got yours ready? Um, Should Christians obey the Old Testament law? Now, you may say a simple yes. You may say a simple no. You may have something a little more wordy, (laughs) complex to say about that, just to kind of get the gears turning. Uh, I'm not calling an answer at this point. Just kind of getting people, getting people thinking. Uh, but without, I'm not going to just kind of call on people to answer open ended because then you would you would give me the answer and we'd be done already. <laughs> we wouldn't have anything to talk. about. No. Um, do we have any hands for a simple yes? Okay. There's, there we see at least a couple. Do we have any hands for a simple no? Okay. Do we have any hands for it's kind of but it's complicated? Okay, a lot of hands there. And I'm sure that if we were to ask all the kind of people, we would get all kinds of different ways of articulating. And we, I think I'll recognize that there, there's some complexity here, and we're going to get into that in our passage. As we move through the sermon, again, we're, this is Jesus' great, um, probably the greatest sermon he ever gave. It's the first of Matthew's long um, discourses he focuses on with Jesus giving this concentrated teaching. And we've seen that at Jesus began in chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, with this introduction to his sermon, really setting a vision for what a life looks like that is blessed. Uh, and we, we started to see it's not necessarily blessed in the material ways we might tend to think. It's blessed in terms of character. It's a kind of person who has this inner virtue that's like Christ himself. And he's, he's uh, shown that, especially in the Beatitudes, verses 3 to 12. Then in last week in verses 13 to 16, we saw what that looks like as it turns out and faces the world. 
that, that kind of inner character facing the world and then being in the world and what that influence looks like. And then now we're going to continue and look at verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5. So I'll read it. Matthew five seventeen to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, as I, you can hear in the reading of it, and as I kind of teased out in the opening question, we're following Jesus into deep waters this morning. This, this little paragraph is going to have us wrestling with some of the most, really some of the most difficult issues in all of scripture and theology, of how, especially the question of um, how the Old Testament relates to Jesus. And I hope, we may not answer all the questions, I keep saying that, <laughs> I can't promise all the questions answered, but I hope we, we grow in clarity, my prayers, we grow in clarity and confidence in knowing how to understand how to use the Old Testament profitably as Christ's people and how to understand better his own coming and his identity and ministry. So what we're going to do is first look at the context of kind of how this bit fits in the rest of the sermon, then we're going to do an overview as to the contents of it, and then we're going to just walk through bit by bit, so you can kind of see that in your in that one in your handout. So first, the context in the sermon. Um, as I said, last week, we saw the, well, two weeks ago, we saw the Beatitudes, this inner character of Christ's people, of his disciples, uh, and that this is the happy life, uh, not in the superficial sense, but this is flourishing. This is uh, the best existence that his that people could have. He's inviting them into. Um, and then in 13 to 16, that faces out into the world as salt and light. And so this week's passage, and I said this last week, is the beginning of the body of the sermon. Okay, we've just finished the introduction. This is Jesus launching out, like if you're writing a paper in school or giving a speech or sermon, there's his intro, and then you get into the real meat of it, kind of like I'm doing right now in this equipping hour. And, and then there's a conclusion, right? So this is kind of launching into the, the meat or the body of his sermon. And so this... What, our passage today functions both as kind of the, the, the beginning of the whole body of the sermon, but also the beginning of kind of the more limited section that is the rest of chapter 5. And uh, what we're going to see in really this idea that he ends in verse 20 of greater righteousness, which we'll define in a moment uh, when we get there as we walk through. Um, this is really a paradigm and a theme for the whole sermon. And I didn't mention it, I don't think we went through, when we looked at major themes a couple weeks ago, we didn't mention greater righteousness. But really, this is another kind of way of articulating all that he's doing, is this idea of greater righteousness is really what's a summing up of everything he says in his sermon. Um, And what we're going to get in the next two weeks uh, following, which is what Tyler's going to teach, is we're going to see... Jesus better defining what greater righteousness looks like um, in verses 21 to 48, especially. And uh, so, and I'm going to anticipate that a little more as we go uh, later today. But essentially, he lays out this thesis about unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he's going to start spelling out what do I mean by that greater righteousness in particulars. Um, so that's it for the context. Um, any questions or, or thoughts on, on that? Anything that could be clarified? 
Okay, let's do an overview quick of the of the, the contents of the text. Like I said, this is complex. It depends on it's a it's a big issue. Christ and the law and the Christ in the Old Testament touches on a lot of other texts of Scripture that you kind of have to hold all together. And we're not going to again be able to look at every relevant text. Uh, but it's it's kind of a uh, it's it's kind of a tricky thing, right? To to understand how all the texts of Scripture that deal with this fit together. The big question is, what's the relationship of new covenant Christians with the law of Moses. And um, I hope at least we get some of the big pieces in place uh, today as we we try to answer that. Um, Now, this lesson is going to be a little bit more theoretical than practical because it really has, it's kind of a a big idea kind of a thing. It will affect how we use our Bibles, which is very practical. So it's a kind of a hermeneutically, you know, applied thing. So it'll affect, you know, our Bible reading and our understanding or hearing of those things. Definitely has an impact, but it's a little bit more uh, of an idea thing. What we what we look at in the next two Sundays as we look at Jesus spelling out the particulars of greater righteousness will be very practical. So that's so he's kind of descending from principle into into practical, and we'll follow him that way. Um, but basically, to sum up the answer Jesus gives to this big question of you know what's the relationship of him to the law to the Old Testament, uh, his answer will entail both continuity and discontinuity with the law. So what Jesus is doing and, and who he is and his ministry, it's just helpful. And, and if you were with us last spring, we did a whole class on continuity and discontinuity kind of between the Testaments. Um, this is just a really helpful way of thinking through these issues, that there is some of both. Now, that doesn't answer all the questions because then we have to think through what's the same between you know from beginning to end and then what's changed. Uh, so it certainly doesn't take the problem away, but it, it's just a helpful framework for thinking there's bits of both. There's some things that are going to be consistent all throughout, but then there's something very new happening when Jesus comes. So continuity and discontinuity. And the word he uses in verse 17, fulfill, is really a one-word encapsulation that will have both of those in it. Fulfill kind of has a sense both of there's something being continued and then there's something new that's being started or, or being done. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let me ask you first, at this point, has Matthew and Jesus, of course, given us up to this point any any like law of Moses signals or, or, or references or anything like that up to this point in the sermon? Is there any has there been any Moses yet? Okay, so before the yeah, so before the um, sermon, the first four chapters, there's a lot uh, of Matthew. There's a lot of Jesus's life, kind of uh, repeating some of the. Major events of Israel in the Exodus, which would include Moses. So the temptations are like G- Jesus kind of reliving the Exodus. Yeah, that's a Moses reference from before the sermon. Well, what else? Anyone remember what we kind of, the big deal about Jesus being on a mountain? Whether that was anything Moses-like about that? <laughs> Dude gets on a mountain and speaks from God, right? That's a very intentional, we are, you know, very intentional Moses thing that Jesus and Matthew are doing for us. Again, especially that backdrop of there's a lot of Exodus stuff in the first four chapters of Matthew, and then he climbs a mountain and starts giving this authoritative revelation. So we're already kind of going, oh, there's kind of a new Moses thing going on here, and Jesus giving this sermon. And so here he is uh, kind of picking that issue up. And really that's going to be, Jesus and the law will be a a especially prominent thing here from 5.17 all the way through the end of chapter 5. And as the new Moses, he's kind of a new and greater Moses. So again, 
uh, there's continuity and discontinuity. He's not setting aside the old Moses uh, and saying, forget that. The new, you know, I'm the new uh, teacher in town and you can forget everything that was written before. But he's also not just parroting and teaching what Moses said. Okay, that's, what, that's what's so tricky here is he's doing something new, but he's affirming everything that came before. And he's saying, we're not, we're not checking that. <laughs> okay, so that, that's the big idea of what he's doing in this passage. So, you know, I keep alluding to verses 21 to 48, where you may be familiar with what Jesus does there. Um, there are what people have called the antitheses or things like that. So Jesus will do this pattern in verses 21 to 48, where he'll say, you have heard it said, X, but I say to you, and then he'll say something, something new. And a lot of that, you have heard it said things are not all, but some of them are right from the law. Okay, so then we have to wrestle with, what, what do you mean, Jesus? What are you doing? As you say, you have heard it said this thing, but I say, uh, I say to you this new thing. Um, so this passage is going to help us understand what Jesus is and isn't doing when he, when he says those. Okay, so um, with that, before we kind of start walking through it bit by bit, um, any kind of overall, at least what I've covered, what we've heard from this contents of it, Anything that could be clarified or, or questions or comments or anything like that? Yeah, so yeah, so you're saying he said he'd fulfill every little bit of the law, but you're talking about the cross is and I like that, Lamar, you're anticipating does the cross do away with some? And we're going to see that, yeah, the, what that means fulfill is going to be really tied up in his work. Um, what, he what he did, yeah. And what he, at this point, was yet to do. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's good anticipating of what, where we're going here. Yeah, Tyler. Question. Um, we're talking about the law here and him fulfilling the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So what does he mean by the law and fulfilling? And I would say that you're kind of anticipating the very next thing I was planning to say, which is great. In verse 17, when he says the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the entire scriptures, Old Testament scriptures. That's a very common, you see that all throughout the New Testament, a very common way of summarizing. But I will say, um, so he does kind of lead with that, that thesis statement, the whole Testament, I'm fulfilling, I'm not discarding. But then I, I think that the particular application of that is, is command-centered because that's why he starts talking in verse 19 about relaxing or keeping commandments. And then really when he goes into 21 to 48, he's talking about commandments. Not all those that he deals with are in the law, but that's the, that's the kind of Old Testament bit that will come up is specifically commandments. So yeah, so yes, both and, but that's a good, a good point. And so even when he says in verse 18... Uh, the law, um, I think that's best taken as an even shorter shorthand for the, the whole Testament. And you do see Jesus doing that sometimes. He'll say the law, like in John, he'll say, it's written in your law, and then he'll quote from Psalms. So Psalms and, or law and prophets is like a real like thumbnail, quick way of saying Old Testament. But if you want to be like super duper concise, yeah, Jesus could say law. And in context, he could mean the whole thing. Because the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, were really the foundation of the whole. Really, everything else is built upon that. And so, um, it's proper to, you know, he could say it that way. So, 
Great question. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into it. So good questions that are kind of get, getting, getting us going into where we're, we're headed. So the first kind of half of this, and the way we're kind of breaking it down is verses 17 and 18 are about Jesus and the law, and then 19 and 20 are about disciples and the law. Okay, so just kind of a, a easy breakdown there. So within Jesus and the law, talking about his own relationship with, again, the whole Old Testament, um, he starts with a denial at the beginning of verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And again, this is the whole Testament. He's saying, um, I'm not here to nullify. I'm not here to take it away. Um, why? This is kind of an interesting. What is Jesus assuming or implying by saying this? Don't think that I'm doing X. It's kind of an interesting thing to, to say, right, to a group of people. Yeah, Kira. Mm. Yeah, does that have to do with their messianic expectations? I, yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of what he's doing in his ministry is dealing with that. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think that they would expect the Messiah to take away the law and the prophets. They would very much expect the Messiah to, because um, so, he's anticipated there. So I don't think that 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 necessarily. So the the Messiah that they had in their head before Jesus came, I don't think they would assume he would. He would take away, but that so that that's that's good. Yeah, Gary, that's a good point. Gary. Um, maybe he's just making sure that he associates himself with all of the Old Testament. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. In some ways, I, I yeah, you're right. So he's he's definitely trying to tie himself with that whole stream of revelation and saying I'm part of this. And to Gary's point, I think. I think he's trying to say, you might look at me and see certain things and assume that I am making that clean break. Um, because he, he does some new things that are scandalous. You have in Matthew, he challenges people's, uh, he challenges their, uh, their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. Not, not necessarily what God had intended, but what people had interpreted. So he's pushing against some of their their perception of what the law is saying. And then what is he about to do in the next, the rest of chapter five is he's going to push against, among other things, he's going to push against their reading of the law. So it's just very important. I think what's implied here is he's saying, you might think based on some of the things I say and some of the things I do, and the fact that I am standing up here as an authoritative teacher, you may fall into this trap of thinking that, but I want to just start by, like Gary said, I want to just start by making very clear, I'm not doing that. Um. And, and uh, yeah, so, so there were tensions over Sabbath, purity laws, and then he's going to kind of say some things about the law that, that may challenge them, and will challenge them. So that's the denial. Then the affirmation, the rest of, or the verse, rest of verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, okay, fulfill. This is, understanding fulfill here is probably the heart of our passage. What does Jesus mean here? And um, thankfully, Matthew has already used that word a few times to help us understand in context what Jesus might mean here. Um, and in the, the first four chapters of Matthew, he's used to fulfill in really a variety of ways. And we're going to look at two of them. Can someone read for us Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23? This is, of course, um, Joseph, and he got the birth announcement for the angel, and it's about Jesus' birth and what they named him. Would someone read 1, 22 to 23? They named him Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Josh. 
22 and 23. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, because I want to maybe take a stab at what is fulfill doing here? What does fulfill mean? He named him Jesus. Um, they said, name him Jesus. He will take, uh, he will save his people from their sins. Um, and then how does that fulfill this thing out of Isaiah 7? Okay. He became a sacrifice for animals. Mm-hmm. They work. They couldn't take away sins, but he could. Mm-hmm. Forever. Yeah. So he, he fulfills certainly a lot of the sacrifices. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In taking away sin forever the way they couldn't. That's a big argument in Hebrews. Um what what's how is Matthew using this this bit of Isaiah seven? Yeah, Matt. Satisfies the qualifications needed. Um yeah, yeah, I think that that's a lot of what fulfill means. Um, and, and you mean in this, like, where he says, like, she'll have a son and call him God with us. So um, is it Matthew saying this is that guy? That, yeah, exactly. So this is a promise, right? Just think, what kind of statement is this? This is a promise. And Matthew's saying this is God doing the thing he promised. Okay, that's pretty simple. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a fairly simple you know, you promise someone something, you fulfill it. You know, you have fulfillment centers, you know, places you order retail, right? So, like, they're, they, they said they'd send you something, and they do. But he uses the term in other ways, too. Uh, later on in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, and this is a can of worms that maybe you shouldn't open, but, um, you know, you may recall the events. Jesus is born, and then Herod is after him, and so uh, Joseph's father gets a dr- has a dream. Take him to Egypt, they'll be safe. Uh, it says, and he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, out of Egypt I called my son is from the prophet Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And that, in context, is Hosea referring back to the Exodus. God talking about Israel as my son, I called them out of Egypt. And Matthew's saying, yeah, that event when Jesus actually like, went into Egypt, <laughs> I guess the assumption is eventually he came out again. That fulfills this thing God said in the prophets about the Exodus. So fulfill is, first of all, it's doing something a little different here, isn't it? Um, that's, not a prom- that's not a future promise, per se. That's, like not, that's not the kind of statement that Hosea makes, right? He's, he's giving a statement about something he did in the past. And Matthew's saying, oh, this event in Jesus' life fulfilled that statement that was from Hosea's standpoint in the past. So fulfill, what does fulfill mean here? I, I think this best taken is Matthew sees Jesus' life as in some ways, Jesus is kind of the new Israel. He's embodying Israel's identity and some of the events of their lives, uh, of, of their, their, their corporate experience. And that's what's happening with his wilderness temptations later on in chapter 3, etc. So what Matthew is doing with that word fulfill is a little more, it's not just a promise that's kept, right? It's a sense of there is this event that maybe we didn't see at the time, actually anticipates a future event in the life of Jesus himself, that he kind of re, relives some of the events of the Old Testament. And so um, for Jesus to say that he fulfills the entire thing, I mean, it's not all promises, is it? It's not all messianic predictions. You have those in the prophets and elsewhere. But for him to say that he, he, he fulfills the whole thing is kind of like, a, he's saying something about the, whole, the way the whole thing is shaped. 
that the whole law and prophets are in some ways shaped so as to be completed or fulfilled by him. And an illustration this might be like, if you look at an electrical outlet on your wall, okay, that is shaped in such a way so as to be designed for a certain kind of fulfillment, isn't it? Like it only, if you look at an electrical outlet in the wall, it only makes sense in context of the plug that goes into it, right? The purpose and the shape and the design of that thing is fulfilled when you stick a plug in. And I, I believe it's best to take what Jesus is saying as, I'm just making a statement about the way the hole is, is oriented, is it's oriented like that electric plug that needs me to, to plug in to make sense of the hole. Okay? And that's going to take a variety of forms, um, whether it's promise or, uh, or commandments or symbols. There's all kinds of different ways, particularly, that this happens. Um, so one commentator writes this, Fulfillment in Matthew is a powerful biblical idea that does not depend on prediction per se, while it still leans forward to a time when God will bring to full consummation all of his good redemptive plans. Prediction is really a subset of the bigger idea of fulfillment. End quote. So fulfillment is a larger idea of completing and anticipation. That's how I would define it in brief. This is all kind of high-level stuff. What does it fulfill mean? To bring something to its intended completion is maybe a good summary term. And that's what Jesus is saying he does to the whole law and prophets. And, and as I said, the form of that is going to really vary depending on what the text, the original text, what kind of text it was. Was it promising something? Was it, uh, like Lamar said, some of the, the, you know, the sacrifices that are like a foreshadowing symbol of something Christ would do later on the cross. Uh, events can be fulfilled, like the Hosea, you know, pro, the, the Hosea thing about Exodus. Jesus fulfills some of the things Israel did by, by doing them himself in a way. And then commandments are fulfilled um, by, in, at least in part, by doing them, by, by carrying them out perfectly. It's kind of interesting to consider all the commandments of the Old Testament as a glove into which Jesus was, was to perfectly fit. Right? That, it, and it's not arbitrary. It's not God just pulling stuff out of his hat, like, oh, let's make him do this and this. But it's, it's a description of the perfect man uh, that Jesus was to be. So... Um, so that's what he means by fulfill. I, I bring it to completion. And this is a stunning statement about the whole Old Testament, isn't it? As a way of kind of a, a guidepost into how we read it. Um, we should read it in a way that expects fulfillment in Jesus. Now, I think it, it may be common that, that we might consider that the Old Testament is this vast sea of narrative and commandments and poems and all these things and, and embedded like, like cereal in a bowl of you know milk. There's little nuggets of Christ anticipated, right? But it's, really, it's like really what's, the, the bowl is filled with something else, and then there's just these little things floating around in that medium. But I, I don't think that does justice to what Jesus is saying. He's saying the whole thing is shaped in such a way as to anticipate me in one way or another. Pictures of Christ. There's so many pictures of Christ in, in uh, mm-hmm. yeah, many pictures of in people and events and things like that. So, um, now, this isn't a time to go into all the detail of how to, how, how, how to see that in the Old Testament. Um, I would say that one, and there are books, again, I said this in the sermon last week too, but I'd love to kind of recommend books to you about that. But one just basic thing to take with you is to just open your Old Testament asking. Now, we don't want to make the authors say what they're not saying, but just asking, especially as you, you better we know the whole story, to ask, how is Jesus in, anticipated here? 
How is Jesus being anticipated here? And the New Testament's a really great guide for learning to see the Old Testament that way. The, the, the authors of the New Testament do that a lot. They use the Old Testament a lot, and they use it a lot to show its fulfillment in Christ. So. I heard that the New Testament was an answer to a lot of questions in the Old Testament. The, absolutely. That, that's a good way of putting it. The New Testament is an answer to a lot of the questions in the Old. Even some, things, some questions that were raised and some things that maybe people didn't at the time see as questions that are, that are, that are fulfilled. So that's a lot of big stuff. But any, anything that could be clarified any, um, or any other thoughts to, to add to that? That's a good idea. Maybe someday we should do a whole series on Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so there can be... Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. It can be... There can be misguided zeal in, that, in how we find him. But yeah, that could be a good thing to, to teach at some point. Um, yeah, Karen. Do you think that part, part of the statement uh, you said he's getting into the public Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good, it's not untrue, but it's also a good rhetorical move, right? <laughs> to say to these committed Jews, like, I'm not, I'm not telling you to ditch all that. Like I'm, it's on the one hand, it's a very bold move to say, I'm the point of all that, all that you hold so, so dearly and believe and, and cling to, it's about me. <laughs> so in some ways it's a really gutsy and kind of bold move, but it's also, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, he's assuring them, yeah, don't, you don't have to leave God's word. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the one, he's the one who was revealed. So yeah, good. Let's talk about the reason in verse 18, the permanence of the law. He says, for I, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's affirming the permanence of, again, the law and the prophets here. Now, if you just look at the way this verse is structured, it's kind of interesting. There's an until statement at the beginning and then another until statement at the end. And then the, you know, the thing that won't happen. So if you, if you say, until X, this thing won't happen until Y. I think it stands to reason that those are basically two ways of saying the same thing. That, that terminal point uh, before which something will not happen, it's the same thing. Okay, so we need to understand what he's saying is um, there's some kind of termination point when heaven and earth pass away, which also could be described as all is accomplished, the moment when all is accomplished. And until that point, not, not an iota or dot will pass from the law. Um, is this, so what does he mean by heaven and earth pass away? Is this a way of talking about forever? Is he just saying until, you know, un, until eternity? Because, you know, in, until this impossible future thing that, that won't happen. Um, I don't think that's what he means by heaven and earth pass away. Um, this is the kind of language that you see elsewhere in Matthew and, and uh, in other texts that, that we could say it's called apocalyptic language. An apocalyptic language is language that kind of portrays heaven breaking into earth in dramatic fashion. It's kind of end of the world type language. And I don't just mean in passages that we typically consider eschatology, but in end times like Revelation. 
Um, apocalyptic language comes up elsewhere in the Bible when a lot in the prophets. It's like the whole earth is shaking and you know, like everything's dark and all like these kinds of language. This is kind of end of the world type language, and it's Jesus' way of describing uh, future events and, and the biblical author's way of describing future events. But uh, it would not be. I don't think it would be best in context to see that as like until everything is annihilated, which will never happen. And so there's this is actually just a hypothetical point. Um, now, what is he referring to? Um, if you look, let's look in, in um, Matthew 24, verses 31, 29 to 31. Looking ahead in Matthew 20, 24, chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. And again, this is another ball, uh, can of worms that we, <laughs> we, we uh, dare not uh, go too deep into. Um, but... This is the Olivet Discourse, the fifth great kind of sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew, and it's about the events of the end uh, in the future. He says in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So he's talking about these end times events. And then he says later on, he's 32 and 33 are like, know how to look for the signs of this in summary. 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it seems like this heaven and earth pass away thing is talking about the events he's describing. Now, it's a tricky question, and I'm sorry, not going to answer. What exactly is he referring to? To what extent is he referring to the, the end that we still await his second coming? Is there an extent to which he's actually referring to events in his own time? Um, I think it's best taken as the, uh, at least the kind of the, the, the passing away of all things, the end is sort of a complex event. And sorry if this is disappointing, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a kind of a yes and a lot of times with eschatology in the Bible. There's some sense in which things are being completed in Jesus' first advent and his death. So the fact that, what, what happens to the sky when Jesus dies? It goes dark. That's an apocalyptic event. That's the kind of, you know, the sun not giving its light kind of a moment. Of course, it's not, it's not everything being shaken. It's not the most ultimate, but it's like the, this sort of beginning of apocalyptic event um, I believe is coming, a second coming will be even more apocalyptic. Uh, and so it's sometimes hard to say what's being described at a given point in a biblical prophecy. But all that to say, I think what we can sum this up and say is that, um, like a lot of other things with the end times, the cross and the resurrection of Christ is sort of the beginning of the end. And then his second coming is the end of the end, so to speak, with all these, these events that have been prophesied. And so a way to take what he's saying as uh, until all is accomplished and heaven and earth pass away is saying until I fulfill all the things that have been anticipated until I f- carry out the whole script essentially with everything that's been anticipated and prophesied which we know the Old Testament prophesizes death it prophesizes resurrection and then prophesies things he'll do in a second coming and I would what I would understand him to be saying is it's not done until I do it it's not done until I carry it out. Because remember, it's all was pointing to things I would do and, and my coming. And uh, does, that, does that make sense? I know that's kind of a lot dealing with the apocalyptic stuff, but it's a way of saying it's not done until I do it. Third, first time. Third. The third age? The third 
third age. Uh huh. That's when Christ is coming back mm-hmm. on the seventh trump. Mm-hmm. Satan's going to be here on the sixth. Mm-hmm. But before Christ comes or when he comes, Satan's going to be gone. We're going to be transferred into spiritual, uh, a spirit people, complete mm-hmm. people in the eye, mm-hmm. and we're going to live with Christ. Amen. Live with Christ for yeah. So some of those events of the end, yeah. So good. Let's uh, let's talk about so what, just real quick. Jesus is not an iota, not a dot from the law. These are basically little marks in Hebrew. The the iota would be like the Greek equivalent of the smallest Hebrew letter, and then the 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 dot is probably a little just a little tiny mark that distinguishes two different Hebrew letters from each other. So this is just his way of saying very vividly that all the details matter. Which, by the way, this is a helpful text for just this doctrine of verbal, uh, what's called plenary inspiration of Scripture, meaning it's not just the big ideas in Scripture that are from God, but it's all the little details that are from God, every word. And Jesus is saying, he's, I'm not hand-waving away anything. Okay? I'm not saying, eh, whatever, we'll fudge it. <laughs> he's saying, all the details matter, and they're all about me uh, in some way, again, in some, in some way or another. Um. So Jesus is saying that even though he's come, he's speaking about the law authoritatively. He's making some very authoritative declarations about the law. He's not canceling it. He's not pulling rank. So something we need to understand in all of Jesus' ministry, when he deals with the law, the Sabbath, you know, issues, purity. And no point is he just saying, you know what, I'm God, so I'm pulling the trump card, and that doesn't apply to me. Uh, because remember, an essential part of his saving work was to fulfill all righteousness, as he says to John in, in Matthew 3.15 in his baptism. He, he doesn't write above the law, like, oh, guess what, I'm the God-man, so I'm above these things. The point was, to, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, to get underneath the law as a true man and to do it fully. So he's not, he's not just saying, oh, I'm God, so the law doesn't apply to me. Um, then he wouldn't be qualified to, to save us, if that were the case. Um, However, he is going to do some interesting things with the law. He's going to do some authoritative things with the law. But anyway, is that up to verse 18? Any, any questions or, or, uh, or thoughts about any of that? Yeah, Smokey. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of what, yeah, the cross is not just an arbitrary thing to say the cross is a moment of fulfillment. The cross is a massive moment of fulfillment of, of yeah, the penalty for, uh, for sin and, and a lot of the sacrifices and all those things is a major swath of Old Testament anticipation that's fulfilled in the cross. Absolutely. Yeah, as a sacrifice for us. Yeah, so um, good. Let's talk in verses 19 and 20 about disciples in the law. So he's talked about his own relationship with the Old Testament, especially the law. And now what about his listeners? Um, And then, so in verse 19, we have two ways of handling the commands. Two ways of handling the command. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So first, relaxing. Relaxing the commands. Uh, 
he's he's um, talking about doing the law, uh, keeping it and teaching it, or relaxing it and not teaching it, or teaching others to not do it. Um, it seems like maybe he's anticipating that some might twist his words into a pretext for doing something like that. So saying, like, don't take my sermon and the fact that I am going to say some things about the law and say, ah, see, we don't, the law doesn't matter anymore. It's gone and teach others and, and live that way. He's saying, no, no, no. Um, don't, don't, again, don't, don't get me wrong. Don't twist what I'm saying. And uh, that is a valid concern as church history has borne out even from very early days that there have been various attempts at various times to decouple Jesus from the Old Testament in uh, either very radical ways or even more subtle ways. But the idea that uh, Jesus is kind of totally incompatible with the Old Testament or is doing something completely new, Jesus is trying to cut that off the path, saying, no, 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 <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I'm doing, so don't do that. Um, now, by saying these people will be, the people who relax the law and teach others to relax, it will be least in the kingdom. Um, that kind of may sound like he's saying they will be included, but they, you know, they'll be sort of like second class citizens. Like they, they barely get in, but they're sort of like the, you know, they live in the bad side of town in the kingdom of heaven or something like that. Um, I think verse 20 helpfully clarifies what he means in verse 19. In verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds out of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter. I believe that verse 20 interprets verse 19 that in terms of being least and being greatest, it's kind of a euphemism for saying you will be in or you will be out or vice versa. So least is not, well, you'll, you'll be kind of a, you'll be kind of a second class citizen in the kingdom. He's saying you won't be in sort of like from the standpoint of the kingdom of heaven, these will be the losers. These will be the people that, that lose out. So on the other hand, keeping the situation is, is the mirror on the reverse side, keeping and teaching others to do the same are exalted and included and exalted in the kingdom of heaven. And you'll recall that in the Beatitudes, verses 3 and 10, the kingdom of heaven was what Jesus held out as really the, the great reward, the great benefit of discipleship to, for those who follow him. And really all the, all the second halves of the Beatitudes are various aspects of what it means to have the kingdom of heaven. It begins in this life spiritually in our coming under Christ as king, but really will be fulfilled when his when he fulfills, <laughs> when heaven and earth pass away, right? And he fulfills all things and really establishes the kingdom in fullness. So Jesus is saying, when the new regime is, is coming, uh, the people who ditch the law are not, are not compatible with that. The people who kept it are. Um, so what he's saying is true disciples don't cancel the law. True disciples don't, don't ditch the law. They don't relax a standard. They don't hand wave it. Just like he says, I'm not hand waving it away. My disciples aren't going to do that. They uphold it. And so we're going to talk in a moment about, but what about Christ's coming? How does that impact how we hold on to it? But it does not usher in lawlessness. So it's very clear. His coming is not, is not the, you know, the birth of, of lawlessness. Again, people have tried to take him that way over the years at various times, but trying to be very clear about that. So any pushback or anything? What do you mean? least and greatest. Anyone not convinced that he's talking about being included or not included? Yeah, Jason? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, and that could be something to, to look at. If that if there's any precedent for talking that way, it's not the most natural way we... Again, I'm, I'm really reading it through the lines of verse 20. Um, but yeah, that's a fair thing. Is, it, is there any precedence for saying 
Because on its face, it kind of, it really sounds like it's talking about degrees within something. Yeah, I hear that. I don't know. It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah. question. Why does he talk from law and prophecy of these commandments in 19? That's another good point that I think that these commands would best be taken as including his commandments. Um, so the, and, and his commandments are a fundamental continuity with the law, of course, they're not exactly what the law said. So yeah, I think that that's part of why he focuses on these commandments is he's about to give commandments. But still he's talking about the law as well. Think anything that anybody anybody knows that Christ had been to the cross with him, mm-hmm. to the cross with him. If they try to do it again, and saying he was a failure, and they're mm-hmm. going to correct him, mm-hmm. and he don't like that. Yeah, so we don't want undermining the completed work of Christ, yeah. and and yeah, what he did is done. Yeah, yeah. That's where you drop it. That's so much of the the author of Hebrews is at least with the sacrifices making that argument yeah, about the the sacrifice. Yeah, totally undermining. So, yeah. yeah, it would yeah. be undermining the com, the completion of Jesus' work to kind of go back to those those yeah. symbols instead of the reality. Yeah. Symbols cannot mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about verse 20 then. The reason for what he said in verse 19 is that greater righteousness is required. Verse 20. And I'll read it again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds out of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, and as I said before, I think I said, uh, this is the statement that really launches him into the, the verses 20 to 40, 21 to 48, where Jesus interacts with the, the commandments of the law. And I think he's... Uh, in, 21 to 48, he's really filling out the details of what he's talking about here in verse 20. Um, But we have to understand, we have to answer an important question. How must the disciples' righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Um, What is he saying here? Now, the original hearers, this would have been a shocking statement. It would be like saying, you must be more fit than the CrossFit junkies or something like that. Like, what? There's no such thing, right? Or or, uh, that's, that's... that's how it would have come across. These are the most zealous people for the law. Uh, the, the scribes were, were the legal scholars who, again, they, they had practices they developed and kind of how to obey the law, and they would kind of come up with these other codes of rules to sort of spell out all that was uh, kind of filling the gaps of what the law didn't say about how to keep the law. And so they ended up creating a, a lot of other kind of man-made traditions. And the Pharisees were just this, this group of very zealous uh, is this kind of religious purity movement. They were uh, committed, as one, one author says, to meticulous observance of the law. These are not people who, who took the law um, casually. And, uh, and so, and Jesus rebukes them, as I said. They, they kind of wrap the law in a lot of man-made traditions and ended up, you can, on the one hand, you can understand the, the motive there, but also it became a very destructive thing to God's people. So, uh, Jesus will say that, and we, we won't look there, but um, if you want to read on your own, the beginning of Matthew 23, 
And a lot of Matthew 23 is coming after these people for the way that they're abusing God's word and using it to abuse others and being hypocritical. And he says in the first four verses there of Matthew 23 that uh, you load men up with all these burdens uh, in the way that you interpret the law and apply it to them. So, but anyway, that's the scribes and Pharisees. So what does Jesus mean when he says you have to have greater righteousness than they do? Um, I'll suggest a few options. One is, is he saying, is he just giving this call to perfection, absolute perfection, that nobody can meet? And so the point of this is like what's called the second use of the law that we see it and we go, I'm a sinner. I need Christ's mercy. Cast ourselves at his feet in faith. Um, now, so that's one possibility. That's all. It's just this impossibly high standard that makes us all need mercy. Or is it, number two, a higher standard then the scribes and Pharisees can meet in the way that they are pursuing righteousness. So you just got to beat them at their own game is the second idea of what he might mean. Get higher on the ladder that they're climbing. And the third is a different way of pursuing righteousness altogether, a different way of thinking about what righteousness is than they do. Um, as for the first, the idea of kind of, again, the second use of the law, this idea of this, this really, really impossibly high command that makes us go, ah, um, have mercy on me, the sinner. Um, that's a very biblical use of God's commandments. And I think that's a biblical use of all of God's commandments, that they all could have, at least secondarily have that effect on us to say, wow, I do not meet up to God's standard. I, I'm a sinner. I need the free grace of God in Christ. That's, you never go wrong <laughs> taking a commandment of God that way. Um, but as I said earlier, when we dealt with the Beatitudes, when Jesus said in, in verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that in the context of Matthew, I don't see Jesus talking in terms of uh, this this idea of just, I need righteousness counted to me, imputed to me. Um, he's talking very much about character. He's talking very much about our lives. He's going to be very practical in verses 21 to 48. And he's calling his disciples in the New Testament to a certain kind, to be a, a certain kind of person. He's not just calling us to grieve that we're not a certain kind of person. He's calling us to also be a certain kind of person. Um, and righteousness by imputation, which is what you get when you throw yourself at Christ's feet for his mercy in, in brokenhearted repentance, is beautiful and absolutely essential to our salvation. But it's not always what the biblical authors mean when they talk about righteousness. So we just want to be sensitive to the context. It sure seems to me in the context of this sermon that Jesus is talking about our lives, our character. Um, so what I think the correct answer of those three is number three. Um, that uh, what we're gonna, I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, stealing Tyler's thunder for the next couple of weeks. But um, what Jesus is gonna do in verses 21 to 48 is he's gonna be critiquing a certain way of externalizing God's commands. And um, there, there is a way that people have found to do the commandments in a way that only engages kind of outward behavior and can can kind of separate out from the heart, the activity of the heart, which Jesus will teach elsewhere. That's the source of all your life. That's the fountain of who you really are. Um, but they've found ways to kind of disengage their heart from the commands. And so thinking about like like lust and adultery. You know, there's, there's a way you can be, as a man, let's say, you can be very good at never committing adultery. You can never touch a woman who's not your wife inappropriately. You can never... Even be in the same room with another woman who's not your wife. Never talk to such a woman, but still in your heart, it's this noxious cesspool of sexual sin, of fantasy. Right? That can happen. Jesus is going to go after that in, in, in the verses to come. Things of that nature. He's going to say, that's not righteousness. You found a way to make the law kind of end there at what you do outwardly. That's not righteousness. That's not the kind of righteousness that I'm 
I'm talking about. So it's, we say greater, I would say maybe a way of putting it is, is deeper. One that permeates deeper into, into, into the soul and is integral into your whole, your whole person. And again, to get ahead of, to, 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 uh, to get ahead of Tyler for the next couple of weeks, I, I said at the very beginning, one of the big themes of the whole sermon is this idea of perfection in verse 48 of chapter 5, which uh, I argued in this context does not mean getting 100% on your exam. It means complete, um, which would be more like whole and, and without, without anything missing. Um, and so that fits really well, this idea too, right? Of you can't just check your heart out of the equation and do the outward things. He's saying you must be perfect. You must be whole. As James 1 says, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right, that complete and lacking in nothing is, is this another big controlling idea throughout the sermon, that it's your whole self that I'm calling for. Um, so again, and I want to say, you, you know, it's just, we've said this before a few times, but to keep beating the drum, the point in the sermon is character before conduct. Right? We've said that a few times, character before conduct. Conduct matters, so we don't, we don't ditch that at all. But just the, the, the deeper insight that who we are is what shapes what we do, what the condition of our heart is, what shapes the actions at the outward. And so Jesus is looking at the whole person and our motives, you know, what motivates what we do. So putting together verses 17 and 20, I, I think it would be important also to point out that um, Jesus, as the fulfillment of everything, part, part of that means he is the greater righteousness. Like he's the perfect exemplar of greater righteousness. He's the one who most fully from, from the outside all the way to the inner uh, core of his being without any contrary desires, without any contrary uh, you know, heart-loving sin. Like we sometimes it can be such a struggle uh, in our hearts to not love sin. Jesus' law-keeping was always whole person, all out, every day he wanted to do the law of God. And so he is that greater righteousness. He's a perfect standard in his, in his fulfilling of those things. So... Without any, um, we're going to talk a bit more about kind of application and putting it all together. But any, any on verse twenty, any thoughts or questions there? Yeah, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. So I know from my own Bible study and 
mm-hmm. and look for things that I see in the scripture that are true knowledge. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Right. Yeah. So that Second Peter one—that's a good phrase of true knowledge. That it, it's all. Yeah. Our 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 thinking, our desiring, all these things are intermixed. But yeah, that fuels. And often, what God's word does when we 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 get true knowledge from God's word is it it shines a light into what's going on in our hearts, both what 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 it ought to look like and what it doesn't look like yet. And so, yeah, absolutely. We don't we don't do the we this this yeah this comes out in the scriptures. Absolutely. Yeah, Austin. Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah, so is if I say he's not saying outdo the Pharisees and scribes at their own game, how is that different than the end of verse 19? Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. That's a, that's a really good point. Part of, you're anticipating very well where I'm about to go, which is part of what he's doing in, in chapter 5 is showing that they actually distorted the law. So um, that's just something important to realize when we can see Jesus wrestling over the law with some of these figures in, in, in first century Israel, and we kind of think like they got the law right, and so he's anti-law. That can be a very easy trap to fall into. So it's important to realize uh, often what he's doing is showing they got the law wrong um, and, and, and they missed what was really going on. They missed the true knowledge, to use gears, of the law. Okay, there was maybe this, uh, this, this, this distorted application. So in, on the one hand, yeah, he's, saying, he's not saying just, do more, just be more pharisaical than the Pharisees. But he's also not, he's also not saying, well, just forget, forget the commandments. Uh, that, that's hard to get through our heads. Like, they are not the... the perfect advocates and exemplars of the law that they think they are. We need to realize that they're not. Yeah, Garrett, do you have a... So, just kind of thinking big picture here, he's, what he's talking about, especially in verse 19, uh, bringing these commandments, which begs the question, which is really mm-hmm. a Mm-hmm. Yeah, these these commandments. Yeah, I think it would be the Old Testament commandments um, through the lens of His own fulfillment. Which part of that is clarification and and correcting what it really means. Does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah. yeah, and hopefully that clarifies a little bit as we go in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, that's those great questions. They called the Jewish people acceptable prophets mm-hmm. or sinners. Yeah. Well, like all, all of us, or all of them were sinners like all of us. Yeah, yeah. All of us. In Israel, yeah. yeah. So let's, well, it's, yeah, it's since Adam, it's in our nature, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Let's, um, let's look at putting it all together and practicing it. Um, and first I want to just kind of sum up, what's Jesus doing with the law in this sermon? Um, again, we're going to look at continuity, discontinuity. That's our framework. First continuity, and this is kind of to get what Austin's thing and, and Garrett's thing he is clarifying its true intent. He is dusting off uh, bad teaching and bad understanding that's accrued around the law. So one thing is going, hey, 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 you guys are you guys rolled the law in mud. Let me get it out and, and, and polish it and show what it was really supposed to be all along. 
he's clarifying the, the real intent of the law. Um, but that's not all he's doing. The prophets did that. All the prophets in the Old Testament were doing that to a degree. They were reapplying the law, preaching the law as God intended it to Israel. Again, it would be coming short of all that Jesus means by fulfill to just say he's like the great teacher of what God had already said. Okay, so he is doing that. That's important to realize. That's how he can attack the, the, these legalistic people without undermining the law itself. But he's doing more. Um, he's, there's also discontinuity. He's introducing something new. Um, he is claiming to have more authority than Moses without setting aside Moses. And that's how does he do that? Well, a couple of things. One is I would say he relativizes the law. So, so looking at the divorce thing in verses 31 to 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. On first reading, it might look like, oh, is he just, is he saying that the law was wrong? The law permitted divorce. Am I saying, well, the law was wrong. You can't, you can't get divorced. Well, in, in, uh, in, in Matthew 19, which is a parallel passage where he again deals with this issue, Matthew 19, 3 to 9, I'll just read verse 8. He's having an argument with them about this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is not dismissing what Moses said. He's not saying God didn't say that. He's not saying that's illegit. But he's, in some way, he's, he's zooming out and saying, well, there was a provisional reason for that, that I'm in the authoritative position to say that had its use with hardness of heart, but I'm saying that's not the ultimate ideal. The ultimate ideal also comes from the law, Genesis 2.24, the two should become one flesh, uh, which is the law, the Pentateuch, right? So, um, so, He's not dismissing it. He's not canceling it. But in some way, he's getting at a vantage point for this super mosaic authority. Isn't that because super mosaic? Uh, more authority than Moses and saying, yes, that's true, but, but he's putting it in a certain place. He's, he's making it relative to a broader, a broader concept. That's a big time authoritative move, isn't it? He only told you that because X, and I'm telling you that there's something, there's more to the picture. Uh, he also is going to add more stringent commands as he deals with the heart. He's going he's gonna to show that the commands, really what God wants is more stringent than some of the, the way that the old commandments were worded. Um, so it's, it's something to meditate on. How, how, does he have more, how does he exercise greater authority than Moses without dismissing or undermining Moses? But, but he, is, he is doing that. So um, that's what Jesus is doing with the law in this sermon. Um, then the question that you all came in here this morning wanting to the, the, get to the point, Tim, the whole reason you're here. No. So should we obey the Old Testament law, right? The big question that I, I, actually, uh, I actually dangled in front of you. Um, I'm sure we've all wrestled with this in some ways or somewhere or another. Um, so how do we get this down, down to the street in our lives? Is the Old Testament law so binding on us or not? Let's just first review what does Jesus mean by fulfill. First of all, his fulfillment means he does it entirely. He obeys it entirely in his own life. Second, it means um, fulfillment means he is, he is finishing what was anticipated, how it anticipated him. And you have texts in the New Testament that talk about the old covenant in which the law was delivered, which is the covenant, a framework of relationship between God and man, that that covenant is brought to an end, is obsolete. Uh, that's the language of Hebrews 8.13. Jesus coming to institute a new and better covenant, bringing to the end the old covenant. So the, the, the framework, the relationship, 
between God and his people in which the law was given is no longer in effect. The new covenant is a new covenant. Okay? So, um, hmm, so, so we don't keep the law? <laughs> well, the New Testament elsewhere teaches that also the law does not apply as the law to, to new, new covenant Christians. So, because um, I want to read Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29 for us. Paul is right in the thick of dealing with law and gospel there. Yeah, Galatians 3, 23 to 29. Thank you. So you have this picture of the law had this that had this provisional role to keep everyone um, in prison, so to speak, under as a guardian. It wasn't a bad thing, but it was a guardian to kind of keep people in place until the the coming of salvation by faith in Christ would come. So it had this preparatory, and you can see fulfillment there. Right? It had this preparatory role until Christ would come. Um, but the New Testament authors often quote the law and apply it to New Covenant Christians, and uh, one. We won't look there. Well, if you're already in Galatians, he does it in Galatians 5. It's pretty striking. Um, he, uh, he says in 5.14, after just going on and on about how we're not saved by works of the law, like that's the huge thing in Galatians. 5.14, when he gets to conduct, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like, Paul, why would you describe it that way? Why would you, why would you, is he confusing the issue? He does the same in Romans, another big one on the law, and law keeping not as a basis of our righteousness. Romans 13, 8 to 10 does the exact same thing. Love is the fulfillment of all the commandments. And so, um, what I, the way I would I take it is this. The law contains in it uh, the timeless moral will of God. It's a reflection of God's character. It's a reflection of what God wants from his people. And it's wrapped in a certain context. It's wrapped in a certain um, uh, set of factors that are related to Israel's identity in their time, in their covenant, in their place. So the idea that they're in a certain land and that they're living among certain people. There is a certain shape that those timeless truths about God and what he wants from his people take at Sinai or at you know in Deuteronomy as they're about to go into the land. Um, and so I think the best way to, to, to take it is to recognize the law does still reveal the character of God. It still reveals the moral will of God as it points to Jesus. And so now that we are in Christ, the same basic principles will apply, but in a new covenant, they will look different. And so um, Christ is kind of the one we look to. We, I think there is profit in looking at the Old Testament law, but never without regard for Christ as the one who's brought us into a new covenant. Um, so I would say just always looking at the law and asking, what is the timeless will of God for his people? What is the timeless thing about God's character that this law, this particular law is reflecting? And how does the New Testament um, translate that into the new covenant people of God? What has Christ done to fulfill this? And of course, this could also be a whole other thing, right? How to do it? Because there's different kinds of laws. There's ceremonial and all these things. But um, we, we don't want to just dip right back into the law and do it like, un, like, like without any other further consideration, but we also don't ditch it, right? 
So we have to think through how does how is Christ coming and bringing this new covenant change the way that this law will look for us. So one one author says this: Christ's commandments contain the law, but the law does not contain Christ's commandments. Therefore, whoever fulfills the commandments of Christ implicitly fulfills the commandments of the law. That's well said. So any I know there's a lot, and uh, I'm short. I, I'm willing to talk afterward if you have other questions. But any any if there's any like burning questions. Uh, those things at the end that we've covered or others just agreement yeah that's sums up the whole law right loving him with our heart soul mind strength our neighbor as ourself yeah that's good and that's all you need yeah you get A book uh, on on Christ and the law, pretty good. Well, I, I did. I recommended a little a little booklet uh, a few weeks ago in the kind of update video. I could. It's uh, how do we grow in holiness through reading the Old Testament by Michael Barrett, Michael P. V. Barrett. That's helpful. It's really short. There are longer books uh, that that look at kind of the whole Old Testament more that I could I could kind of share some recommendations. That'd be a good like first place to look. Yeah. Was that a hand up, Terry? Oh, okay. All right. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for Christ, the fulfillment of all things you'd revealed. We pray that you'd grow us into, as Gary said, true knowledge, just growing deeper into our understanding of Jesus and what your will is for us as his people. And uh, we we pray that, as especially as we move forward in this series, that you would convict and shape and help us to see better and better uh, what whole life uh, obedience looks like and that we would be indeed resting in Christ as the one who accomplished all things, who's Work is a, the basis of our salvation and, and in him seeking to, uh, to fulfill the law as, as you intend. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.